Hello and welcome to another popular podcast brought to you by Extremis Publishing Limited. Uh, today we'll be looking at Dr Christie's latest book, The Golden Age of Christmas Movies. Uh, Dr Christie is passionate about popular culture and apart from publishing books written by others, 21 so far, he has written a baker's dozen of his own, including books on Mel Brooks, the films of James Bond, and very recently a second book about the director, John Hughes. Mind you, a very specialised book about the Sinclair ZX Spectrum computer entitled The Spectrum of Adventure, I found seriously intriguing. Uh, and that whole pack of books evidences Tom's wide-ranging expertise and a whole range of popular culture. So let me introduce Dr Tom Christie, Fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts, MA in British Cinema History, PhD in Scottish Literature, Member of the Royal Society of Literature, the Society of Authors and the Federation of Writers Scotland, prolific author and book publisher, Mr Extremis himself. Uh, I am Ian McNeish and I will, it will be my pleasure to be on the other side of the microphone. Hello Dr Christie, or can I be impertinent and call you Tom? Well Ian, we've known each other for 13 years so I think... <laughs> Tom's fine, eh? I think Tom, Tom sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, in 2011, you ventured into the world of Christmas films with The Christmas Movie Book, followed in 2016 by A Righteously Awesome 80s Christmas, subject of a similar podcast recorded last year. You've picked up that theme again with your most recent publication, The Golden Age of Christmas Movies, in which you employ the full range of your observational and writing skills to take an attentive look, a conspectus, now there's a word, <laughs> mainly of the genre of festive movies of the 1940s and the 1950s, but much more as you will take the reader right back to the age of the silent film. A tour de force of information and detail, not just a stocking filler for film buffs, even those solely interested in the Christmas movie, but a must, in my opinion, for film and media students, an important book to fill the library shelves of universities and colleges far and near. It's more than that, however. It's an interesting and enjoyable book, accessible to all who take a pleasure in the written word. Oh, and it's full of facts for you quiz fiends out there. Anyway, enough about me. Tom, I see in the book that the foreword is by America's favourite Santa Claus, Joe Moore. How did you get him to write a foreword for your book? Well, I've known Joe now for, oh, must be about six or seven years. Um, and how we got to know each other, oddly enough, was through LinkedIn, the professional social networking site. Oh um, now, I joined LinkedIn, I think, about 2012, 2013. And one of the things it does is it recommends other people in your field uh, who you might know or people that you might have a, a reason to connect with. And Joe, in addition to being a professional Santa Claus, uh, is also a prolific author and publisher. Uh, and he runs his own company called the North Pole Press. So, as you can imagine, having written books on Christmas cinema before, uh, we became good friends and we'd stayed in touch ever since. Uh, so he was very kind of Joe to agree to write the foreword for the book, um, as he's someone who really has an encyclopedic knowledge, not just of Christmas cinema, but of Christmas generally. Does that mean that your book will be on sale across, through his outlets? Well, the book's available really anywhere that you can buy 
independent publications. Yeah. Um, the distributor that we work with covers about 87% of the globe, so right. technically, uh, yes, you can buy it in America, Australia, or anywhere else you would like to buy it. And the fact it's got his kind of, I know, sign of approval, as it were, uh, can only help, I suppose, you know, across the pond. It certainly meant a great deal to me, yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, as I say, Joe is very much Mr Christmas, and, uh, you know, has been appearing as Santa Claus now for many years. <laughs> there you go. So, having read the book, I notice, well, in my, my view, it, it can be divided into three distinct sections. The main focus is on 17 most well-known Christmas films from the 40s and the 50s, 1940s, 1950s, including old favourites like Meet Me in St Louis, It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, the year I was born, Miracle of 34th Street, 1947, Scrooge and White Christmas, with famous names like James Cagney, James Stewart, Catherine Hepburn, Doris Day, Cary Grant, Bette Davis and many more. A question really now, do you think the 1940s and the 1950s marked the era when the Christmas film came of age, uh, came into its own really? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think certainly in the mid-1940s in particular, you start to see the main themes of Christmas films starting to be laid down. Um, And these are the themes really that have come to typify the whole genre because of the ones that are still used now, subverted, referred to, um, but generally the ones that filmmakers keep coming back to. Um, there had been Christmas films before the 1940s. Certainly, as, as I see it, the 1940s and onwards uh, were the period where Christmas really started to become its own genre of film. Um, that it was no longer very much a, a kind of subtopic, but really mm-hmm. the, the whole point of the film itself. And out of that, and out of the studies, do you did you detect any main themes being established? in the Christmas film of that era? Well, that's interesting, actually, because the main themes that come out of the Christmas film in the 1940s um, are the ones which I imagine everyone will be able to automatically recognise. You have have very much a recognition of the tension between materialism and commercialism on one hand Uh and the sort of traditional altruism of the Christmas period on the other. Um, You have the celebration of community in the family unit and of course that um, broadens out as the uh, period goes on because initially you have the celebration of the nuclear family unit then you start to have in films like It Happened on Fifth Avenue a recognition that the family is more than just blood relations, you know, that it can uh, really encompass a whole variety of different people um, that you make your own family, essentially. Um, Whereas It's a Wonderful Life is a celebration not just of small-town America, but also of um, community and community spirit. So these were uh, the main topics that came up um, throughout this period. Then you have other subsidiary topics, like, for instance, um, In the Bells of St Mary's, uh, a film that only briefly deals with Christmas, um, but raises this topic of the need to keep the Christmas spirit going right the way through the year. Now that probably seems fairly familiar from the Christmas Carol, um, but it's a topic that directors came back to time and time again throughout the 40s and mm-hmm. 50s, that this need to kind of keep the Christmas spirit alive. So, so Anna, right, this question just came to me as you spoke there, and I know it's not in the particular era the era this book's about 
But is trading places the same kind of message that you talk about that's starting to develop through here? Yeah, film. yeah. Okay. John Landis is trading yeah, places back in '83. Yeah, I mean that that very much is a film that refers back to those kinds of that, themes, that kind of topicality. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a very strong um, thematic link between it happened on Fifth Avenue and trading places because right. you have this um, billionaire who is, for a variety of reasons, forced to pretend that he's a homeless man, uh-huh. um, which chimes in, of course, with Dan Aykroyd's character in Trading Places. Trading places yeah. Um, so yes, there's very much a scepticism of. Um, conspicuous consumption <laughs> and uh, the question of whether or not that is a, a kind of existential threat to the Christmas spirit and both films kind of deal with it in the same way um, but this question about you know, can money ever buy you happiness or in fact does it actually isolate you from people? Kind of moving on and I, I did take you kind of out with the scope of that book but I think it was just to try and maybe highlight the same idea uh, you make reference in your book to a battle-weary world, because obviously the pictures of the 40s and 50s would, you know, fit in with this. I think, and I, well, I think that's how you put it anyway, where people yearn for old-fashioned nostalgia and a return to, to innocence, a return of innocence perhaps. Uh, uh, while these might be my interpretation of your words, um, and my next question really emerges from that thought, do you think the Second World War and I include the shadow of fascism and the dark times surrounding that time, had an impact on how the modern Christmas film took form. Yes, I think it probably did. Um, and it was a reaction not just to um, those themes within wartime, but really in the aftermath of the war um, that helped the Christmas film to take form. Um, I mean, if you look at films like The Shop Around the Corner, um, or Meet Me in St Louis that you mentioned earlier, um, there is definitely um, you know, a nostalgic element to it where people are looking back to a period of stability um, before the great upheaval um, and the carnage of the war took place. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to Christmas in Connecticut, of course, there is more of a sense of relief of um, heightened optimism regarding the future because the war at that point was very nearly at its conclusion. And then, of course, you get on to films like The Bells of St Mary's, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, where the war is over, people are looking forward rather than back. But there's a, still a, a recognition, I think, of the tremendous loss that had taken place during that period. Um, the fact that the, you know, the best and the brightest of a whole generation had been put at risk and in many cases wouldn't be coming back uh, after the, uh, the role that they'd played in the war. Um, and uh, th- that I think is is fully recognised in these films. You know that sense of the tremendous sacrifice that had taken place. People in the armed forces, in particular, uh, having fought for their country, coming back and perhaps facing a slightly uncertain future. Um, and you see that in films like Holiday Affair, and I mentioned earlier it happened on Fifth Avenue, um, where there is quite a quite a stark recognition of things like a housing crisis after the war. Um, people struggling to try and find a place for themselves in society at that time, um, having fought for many years um, against fascism. So, so yes, I mean, I think all of these different influences all had an impact on how the Christmas film took shape. I mean, just from my own point of view, my dad had been a prisoner for five years during the war, and obviously, you know, he came back in '45. I was born in '46, but it wasn't really, you know, I'd be young. Christmas seemed to be, not that I remembered it before that because I wasn't here, but Christmas was a big issue for us in these days. And, and even going out, we didn't go often, we didn't have televisions and stuff, but we did go out occasionally and pay our tanner in these days and go 
to the cinemas to see some of these Christmas films and they were really important to us just for my memory from being a, a, a wee boy in these days uh, but yeah so you lead into that main section with a whole myriad of films going back to 1897 for example and then right through to 1939 uh, amongst and there's a lot in there but amongst these I was intrigued by the following The Wrong Santa Claus which I find quite intriguing, and rather negatively titled offering from 1926, There Ain't No Santa Claus. Well, we know that's not the case, because he wrote the forward for the book. <laughs> well, he did, you see. Uh, so that must have been well out its league, that film. Uh, one silent film that you mentioned was all of a minute long, and in that minute there was Santa Claus and delivery of presents on Christmas Eve. Uh, how they managed to get that into a minute, I'm quite interested, but... What audience do you think they were intended for? You know, just where did they fit in these early days? I would imagine you'd probably have, uh, in some cases, compilations of a variety of these different one-reel films, um, because in many cases it would be shown much the same as you would imagine to see a film by Charlie Chaplin or Harold Lloyd or people like that. But from these um, very early films, I mean, there's this very much, as you say, this kind of... Uh, attempt to generate the excitement of, of Christmas and what Christmas meant to people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's quite interesting how they have developed because often in these early films you see these domestic situations with Christmas almost being you know, incidental to uh, the you know the snapshot of, of everyday life, this kind of slice of, of life depiction of, of uh, people living their lives in that period. So it's quite fascinating as a almost as a snapshot of mm-hmm. time gone by. Yep. Um, in that same kind of era you refer to babes in Toyland and it morphing I think that's the term that I'm using anyway into March of the Wooden Soldiers if I'm correct Uh, and I think you use the terms inventive and offbeat about the latter Um, I just wondered if you could explain why the name changed if you know that and and, and what do you mean by inventive and offbeat? How did you explain that? Well, I, I, often in that period, and even now, um, you'll notice that um, producers will change, or sometimes studios will change the uh, title of a film um, to suit particular markets. And um, mm. it is interesting, March of the Wooden Soldiers or, or Babes in Toyland, because it's a film that's been remade um, over the years, but I think certainly the Laurel and Hardy version will always be the best remembered one. Um, what is intriguing about it is the fact that Stan Laurel was notoriously perfectionistic, and if anybody ever asked him what his favourite film was, he would always say, "Oh well, you know, every one of them had faults, problems that I would have liked to have rectified." I was never entirely happy with any of them, but one particular interviewer decided to turn the question on its head and said, "Well, what was your least imperfect film? What one had the least flaws in it?" Uh, and immediately he had said, "March of the Wooden Soldiers." That was the one that he had he felt the most pride in. So it, it was an inventive and offbeat film, really, because it was an unusual, um, for the 1930s, uh, feature in the sense that it has this very overtly Christmas setting um, with Santa Claus appearing as a character. Um, there is no question about the fact that this is you know, very much a kind of proto-Christmas film um, as we would understand it now. Um, and it's, it, I think we take these fantasy settings for granted now after films like Santa Claus the movie in the 1980s um, so it's quite easy to overlook just how inventive and really how pioneering this film was at the time Thanks Tom Now, the last section after that main bit with the 17 films I mentioned the last section which takes us through to the 
the end and actually covers films that were already in there but were maybe you know you've given less focus to however uh, it covers 33 films and you've entitled that about other Christmas films of the 1940s and 50s well the majority of these films I have difficulty in recalling for example 10th Avenue Angel which I'd never heard of <laughs> Destination Tokyo Desk Set The Cheaters and So Proudly We Hail uh, one or two other quite memorable are in there however The Greatest Show on Earth 52 and Holiday Inn in 1942 the latter I think anyway including arguably the most popular Christmas song ever well some may disagree White Christmas by Bing Crosby uh, and I don't suppose a book on Christmas films would be complete without some reference to Charles Dickens however in particular Christmas Carol uh, you mentioned Marley's Ghost the first surviving film version of the story from 1901. The question kind of rolls into three from all that. Do you have any idea how many versions of Christmas Carol were actually filmed in the period covered by your book? And to lead on from that, how many Scrooges were there and which actor did the best Scrooge in your opinion? Looking back, I think there, there's a good number of Christmas Carol adaptations in that period. I think there's about 12 or 13 mentioned in the book um, and of those films more or less all of them featured a different actor in the role of Scrooge. Now the interesting thing about that of course is that every now and again you would get somebody like Seymour Hicks who would have two goes at the part. The same thing happened with Alistair Sim who appeared in the famous film in 1951 and then would later come back to the role in the 70s again in, a, in an animated right. form. Right. Um, so. There, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely interesting area, actually. There is a researcher called Fred Guider who wrote a book about nothing but adaptations of A Christmas Carol. And really, I mean, because there are so many televised versions and adaptations of it, um, generally after this period, um, it's astonishing to see just how many variations there have been on the same tale. And that includes people like Vincent Price, Ralph Richardson, um, leading up to the present day, of course, and people like Michael Caine and Jim Carrey. I mean, some of them are quite dark. But very dark, yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, some of them have actually quite a gothic quality to it, and yeah. that's part of the reason why my favourite of the of the adaptations was the Alistair Sim version. It isn't afraid to sort of wear its heart on its sleeve and carry that, you know, that very dark um, Dickensian um, sense of Victoriana uh, into the film. Um, which is beautifully played by Alistair Sim and that's the reason why Alistair Sim has always been my favourite actor to have taken the, the role on. Many variations of the, of the part thereafter have really been um, you know, looking back to Alistair Sim's performance. Do, do, do you think, it's my view, I mean I watched them in it or I've watched them, there's almost something about Alistair Sim that you feel there's almost a, he's almost, almost I was going to say grinning at this corner of his mouth, in his eyes it probably goes you're almost feeling like he's on the verge of almost bursting into humour mm. just the way that he looks not that he, not that he portrayed but I just I just find him fascinating and yeah mm. and I agree I think he was the most memorable maybe for whatever well, I think he really set the benchmark there's no question about it um, and as you say I mean at the time he was a well known comic actor he um, was initially had started as a uh, lecturer in rhetoric Edinburgh University before moving into into acting, um, but I think people had so associated him with comic roles 
um, when Scrooge came out in the early 50s, um, I think it was a revelation to people. Mm-hmm. I think I think really there was this amazing sense of 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 range that Alistair Sim was able to present uh, in bringing to life not just this very curmudgeonly uh, covetous Scrooge, but also the you know, hugely elated version of Scrooge that we get at the end of the film. I, I know, and, and, and not being an expert in any of this, his name does spring out to me. Yeah, I I, I, I agree. I think he probably was, but certainly the most memorable. Um, I've got two or three questions towards the end of this, which are just kind of general ones. But there have been a massive, there has been a massive music associated with Christmas films over the years. White Christmas, as I said earlier, arguably being the most remembered, whether it be the best or not, but certainly remembered with Bing Crosby. Uh, do, do you have a favourite song or piece of music that featured in one of these films? Uh, and was there a time when the music in the film was more important than the actual film itself? Do you think? I think that's probably true. I mean, Meet Me in St. Louis, I don't think would be nearly as popular if it wasn't for the really memorable songs that are in it. And I'm, I'm very fond of uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, yep. mm-hmm. um, which made its debut in that film. Um, there's actually quite a lot of interesting stories about music and musical accompaniment in these films, um, not least in um, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, which featured Gail Storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of her songs are overdubbed by another singer because the director, Roy Del Ruth, very much believed that if he hired somebody to act in a film, they should just be doing the acting, and if he hired somebody to sing in a film, they should be doing the singing. Right. And he took exception to the idea that you could perhaps act and sing at the same time. <laughs> um, so that was in, that was intriguing. Um, what also, of course, is, is interesting about... Was he using seven brides for seven brothers as his, <laughs> as his measure? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about White Christmas that you mentioned, of course, is the fact that um, it, it has been the most popular um, Christmas song pretty much of all time. Uh, it's thought to have sold anything between 30 and 50 million copies uh, because obviously when the song was first recorded in 1942 um, there were no charts as they are now, no sort of record charts um, so it, it's difficult to get an exact figure. However, if you include people who sang it other than Bing Crosby who had done cover versions of it, you're looking at close to 100 million sales since the song was written by Irving Berlin. That worked. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it's interesting, because apparently when Bing Crosby first when he looked at the sheet music that had been given to him by Irving Berlin, he just took one look at it and just nodded and said, oh, I don't think this will cause any problems. And obviously had no clue of just how hugely successful it would be for him, for his career and for Christmas films generally. I suppose it maybe showed you what a professional he was as well. Mm. And, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, but so to move on in that same kind of theme, not about music, but just about these interesting things, your research uh, probably, or must have come across some interesting facts, stories, fallouts, bloopers, I don't know, like some modern word bloopers, is it, involved in these films. Can you share one or two with us? Just an interesting fact behind the scenes, for instance. Well, uh, to tell you the truth, I mean, I lost count of how many interesting facts I've discovered just as a result of the research for the book. Um, among my favourites were the fact that Jimmy Stewart celebrated his 50th birthday on the set of Bell, Book and Candle, mm-hmm. or the fact that It's a Wonderful Life had been recorded during a heatwave, which is rather difficult to imagine when you consider you know, the snowy scenes that everybody remembers from the film. That's good. The interesting thing about that is the fact that um, the film actually won an award for its use of um, artificial snow, 
because up until then... <laughs> this is uh, such an award. Well, hard to believe, <laughs> but yes, there, there was for special effects. Okay. Because up until then, um, if you wanted to have, um, bearing in mind the film was in black and white, if you wanted to have um, artificial snowfall, it was generally cornflakes painted white. And of course, you would hear the crunching through the film. Oh, so really? It, it would mean that you, you had to no, record. I didn't know that. You had to, uh, well, you had to re-record the dialogue mm-hmm. after you'd done it. Um, now, Frank Capra didn't like to do that. He preferred to have live dialogue. So the only way around it was to make this new snow substitute, which was actually it was, a, it was a strange compound which included fomite, which was um, that was used in fire extinguishers, and it was put in very heavily compressed into a fan, and that's what created the realistic snowfall that you see in the film. So I'll never look at my cornflakes again <laughs> <laughs> without thinking of my goodness. Oh, that's interesting. Never leave them long enough to turn white. I've well, got you need to get the tipex out. That's what it is. <laughs> Do them flake by flake. Right, well, but yet, there, but yet, there's other things as well. I mean, there's a film called Christmas Eve, which is a, a lesser-known Christmas film of the 1940s, uh, and it features George Raft, who is well known for oh, playing yes, you know, tough guy roles. That's right. Um, and uh, there is a scene in the film where he has a fight in the engine room of a, a yacht, a private yacht. I won't spoil the film for people who haven't seen it. Um, but what isn't particularly well known is the fact that he actually received first degree burns from uh, a special effect that went wrong in that scene uh-huh. and had to go on through the rest of the film with these burns um, which just shows what a hugely professional actor he must have been because you, <laughs> yep. you would never know from his performance this had been the case I, I didn't catch them all but you cover quite a lot of that in your book some of these wee incidents and things right, do you have a favourite actor? kind of obvious question I suppose or, or even perhaps a director through that period that, that kind of stuck in your mind as being you know perfection or whatever you know well I was always very impressed by Cary Grant's performance in The Bishop's Wife mm-hmm. um, where he plays this very suave angel called Dudley who comes to <laughs> yes, the aid, comes to the aid of uh, a bishop uh, who is looking to build a, a new cathedral in his community he's having difficulty doing it and Dudley comes down to help him not in the way that the bishop actually expects because what he really does is not so much help him with the cathedral as help him realise what really is important, which is people and community. And Cary Grant gives such an assured and very warm performance, it's actually difficult to think that um, initially the two roles would have been swapped. Um, There had been an earlier version of the film which Samuel Goldwyn had destroyed and decided to go back to the drawing board with a different director, whereby... David Niven had played the angel and Cary Grant had played the bishop and knowing the film so well now it's virtually impossible to imagine the two the two roles being swapped right. at this stage yeah. um, in terms of a director though I'm very impressed by Michael Curtis he had initially of course directed Casablanca to great acclaim in the 1940s but in the 50s he gave us White Christmas and he then gave us We Are No Angels mm-hmm. two films that were um, produced in Vista Vision in full colour but totally, totally different films. Both of them with Christmas at the centre of them. Completely different. And um, beautifully made, actually, as well. One, we Are No Angels being one of Humphrey Bogart's final films, and a very rare uh, chance to see Humphrey Bogart in a comedic role, actually showing off quite an impressive singing voice as well. Both films talk about the importance of community and the importance of family. Um, unconventional family units, in a way. Um, because in White Christmas we see uh, this old wartime platoon coming back together to support their old uh, commanding officer who's basically been a sort of father figure to them. Uh, and We Are No Angels, three escaped convicts, realise that you know, they have quite a profound friendship as well. 
uh, and that helps them to see the world in a, a slightly different light, although we're never allowed to forget the nature of their crimes either. So for that reason, yes, I think Michael Curtis was a, a really quite a profound yeah. figure for the 1950s when it came to Christmas films. Is there such a thing as a conventional family unit, you might ask? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, just putting you in the spot, this, do you have a favourite Christmas film uh, from that period? Uh, and and, and if, if you have, why would it be your favourite? That's a, an intriguing question, actually, because there are just so many good films from this period. I mean, it's, it's I've called the book The Golden Age for good reason, because really every single one has something to commend it. Um, of the of the seventeen main chapters in the in the book, um, but if you were to hold me to any one particular film as being a favourite, I think I'd probably see the Holly and the Ivy from nineteen fifty two, just simply because it is such a really remarkable period of British history, pickled in aspic almost as yep. a result of this film. Um, it's a kind of film that you'll never ever see again because a few years after it. Um, along came the kitchen sink dramas with the realism and less than ideal aspects of British society and the British culture at that time. But The Holly and the Ivy really brings about this kind of very family-oriented Christmas of the 1950s, this kind of post-war um, Christmas, which even then the characters know is passing them by. Was that a British film? It was a British film, was yes. It, okay. it was um, George Morrow Ferrell was the right. director. Yeah. And um, it featured Ralph Richardson as this oh, yes, elderly sorry. elderly vicar. Um, the thing is, he was, only, he was only 50 when he played the part, but mm. you would easily put him maybe in his mid to late 70s or older mm-hmm. um, because he just the, the makeup's really good and his posture and everything. <laughs> People think that about me and I've not got makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the performances are absolutely pitch perfect. You've got Denham Elliott, who of course would go on to win right, the, the Best Supporting Actor uh-huh. after three times running in the 80s, the only yeah. actor ever to do so. Um, he's very, very good as the, the person's son. Um, Celia Johnston's in it. Yes, got it all. Yeah, it's, it's a. She become a dame at one. She did indeed. Yeah, oh, so, that's correct, yeah, so it's a it's a who's who of British acting talent of the nineteen fifties. But the thing is, it doesn't idealise this period either. It's nostalgic, but it's not looking at it through rose tinted spectacles, um, and that's really got to be um, you know something that's commended because it's pointing towards the social realism of the uh, of the kitchen sink drama, but um, it, it's a very faithful adaptation of Winyard Brown's play as well. And, and can you still access that film? Yes you can, it's out on DVD now. Is it? Um, so you can you can certainly still get a hold of it, yeah. I can see my wife's Christmas looming. <laughs> so, yeah okay, I've covered kind of some of your thoughts on the films and, 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 and who's in them, etc. So, anyway, reading the book, what did you hope, or what do you hope they get out of it? I'm not, I'm not saying there's a message in the book, but just what, what would you like if people reading it to actually take from the book? You know? Well, what I'm hoping is that if I've brought to people's attention a film that perhaps they hadn't heard about, or um, you know, a director perhaps whose work they hadn't been familiar with, um, then as far as I'm concerned, I've done my job. Yeah. Um, because what I really wanted to do was try and bring together a, a kind of series of snapshots of the films that helped to make the Christmas film what it was. Um, and that helped to kind of construct the genre that we recognise now. Um, so films like It's a Wonderful Life and A Miracle on 34th Street, people immediately will remember. But there are other films as well, 
um, that I've touched on, like Christmas Eve, like it happened on Fifth Avenue, The Lemon Drop Kids, another really good one. Yeah, I saw that. Um, these these are all um, films which have, for one reason or another, never quite become the sort of legendary Christmas films that that have um, predominated over the years, and and in many ways it's such a pity that they've been neglected. But they are worth a look. <laughs> I think every one of them is worth a look. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the book. I mean, it's a comprehensive look detailed of, of a whole myriad of films in there it's really impressive I, I mean the work you've put into it and, and it's as I said at the beginning this is a must read book certainly you know for certainly for the professional in the area who's but, but for anybody who's just interested at all in the film or or just interested in just life and what's going on uh, so having done that what's your next venture into the written word well, I can't say too much about it, except to say... It's <laughs> you said that last year. <laughs> <laughs> well, this year it really is a shift in gear, though. Um, it's, uh, if, all I'll say is, if you like Scotland, if you like Scottish culture and history, the next book will hopefully be right up your street. Good. So, that's me. Can I run out of questions and perhaps time? So I can c- conclude with a couple of words of my own. So thank you for your honest answers and your... Patience with the questioner, because eh, I enjoyed it. Hope other people do. Uh, there is still bef- time before Christmas, and a book's an essential stock and filler. No reason why that book should not be the golden age of Christmas movies. So have a look at the Extremist Publishing Limited website, uh, www.extremistpublishing.com, or follow on the Facebook site. There'll be something there for you. So. We're all listening. Have a great Christmas. Peaceful New Year from Tom and me and all Extremist Publishing. Thank you. Merry Christmas, everybody. And the same from me. And a Happy New Year. <laughs>